Welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, in which food tells a deeper story. This week, I'm talking British food and class with food historian Penn Vogler as we romp through etiquette and faux pas from afternoon tea to the good old picnic in her book, Scoff. You know, the, if you're aristocratic, you have to eat later to put some social distance between you and the class below. And the class below then has to try and eat later to show that you're kind of, you know wanting to join that kind of upper echelon. And before we meet Penn, this month we're finding out how to avoid buying baby clothes with Jenny Barrett, founder of Superlooper, the children's clothing rental business that could save the planet. The fashion industry is responsible for more carbon emissions than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. 87% of worldwide clothing is incinerated or disposed in a landfill and less than 1% is recycled into new garments. We don't actually need most of the things we own, so why not buy better, buy less, buy only what you need and where possible recycle and share the good stuff. Every time a garment is worn again means less pollution in the long run. And Jenny will be back next week with more reasons to rent your kids' clothes. Do tell your community about this brilliant alternative to buying and let's change the way we think to save the planet. Now, Penn Vogler's book, brilliantly titled Scoff, is about how we Brits are so dysfunctional about food. Our obsession with why and how to eat has tied us in knots over hundreds of years. In a fascinating discussion about what's essentially our relationship with ourselves, Penn told me why scoff was such a perfect word to sum up how we feel about our food. Scoff really works because it has these three different meanings. Scoff means the food we eat. It means eating to scoff. And so for me, it means the way that we eat it or the kind of material culture that um, surrounds it. And what my book does is show how in... Obviously, all the food we eat has a history in Britain, but because we're so interested in class, we're so obsessed with, by class, ever since the Norman invasion, probably... Those, the way that class has driven and changed and influenced and we have manipulated each other or tried to manipulate each other's diet because of social class seem to be encapsulated in that word. And then, of course, the third meaning for scoff is that kind of idea of deriding something, somebody or kind of scoffing at them because they're not quite the right thing. And we have just done that so much in British history. Yeah. Did you find out why, though? Well, I think there are moments in history when it comes up. So again, I I really think because of that early kind of hierarchy that we got from the northern and uh, the Norman invasion, and so our language has got lots and lots of um, kind of implicit class kind of distinctions. You know, just scone, scone, scone. You know, and we you judge somebody, don't you, on where they're from in the country and possibly, you know, their kind of socioeconomic background, depending on how you use that word. And then I think I, I sort of see this moment in the Georgian period when it could have gone right, you know, when in the Georgian period, a lot of female housekeepers were beginning to be the most influential people. And they were setting this kind of British palette, you know, the meat and two veg was essentially what they started, you know, eating. And all the kind of Tudor tastes of very expensive, um, you know, spices and things were kind of put to the background. And then I think what happened is in the very 
um, competitive and socially anxious Victorian period, you know, when we were industrialising and our class became so much faster, but people became so much more anxious about it. One of the things that Brits did was reach for French food as a way of identifying where they kind of sat on the social ladder. And I think that was probably very detrimental to our, our kind of development of, A, British food and our kind of love of it and our champion of it, but also detrimental to the idea that we might all aspire to eat the same thing. Yeah, I, I wonder if social mobility is is part of our curse, actually, much more so than uh, perhaps the Italian, the French, the Spanish, the people who really love their peasant food. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just stopped eating our peasant food. Let's kind of keep that theme as we go through your full food moments. Your first is afternoon tea. I mean, what a glorious exposition of class. Let's just start there. Afternoon tea. Why is it even called afternoon tea? Well, it's only called afternoon tea, apparently, and I learned this <laughs> as I was writing. If you're a commoner and a northerner like me, um, <laughs> and I might not sound that northern, but I grew up in Leeds, um, you'd call it afternoon tea because um, you're distinguishing it from your tea. And if, again, if you are a kind of working class or sort of lower middle class, your tea will be your main evening meal. And if you're upper or aristocratic you wouldn't call it afternoon tea because you would know that the tea you have in the middle of the day is just the tea you you have at all you know and your main evening meal is your dinner or your supper and so the language again is just incredibly important and um afternoon tea it's uh it's this is now a sort of commonplace of um, all the kind of histories and the hotels that kind of produce these kind of fancy tiered cake stands. And they now like to have this little uh, kind of bit of history behind it and say the Duchess of Bedford invented it in 1840 and all the rest <laughs> of it. And you can trace that back to a brilliant American tea historian called William Ukers, who who came up with that um that bit of history but dinner was getting later because it's this kind of class chasing each other so you know the if you're aristocratic you have to eat later to put some social distance between you and the class below and the class below then has to try and eat later to show that you're kind of you know wanting to join that kind of upper echelon and so dinner gets later dinner moves from being about noon in peeps's day to being about six or seven or even eight o'clock in the early 19th century and you get hungry and so the duchess of bedford famously invited some friends round to her rooms in her castle for some tea and uh, bread and butter or cake at five o'clock and this whole institution was born and of course because one of the things that Britain is really good at is cake you know our good sort of solid uh, regional and non-regional cakes um, it kind of suited what we what we do really well yeah, but it gives us all sorts of uh, reasons to trip up the language around it. You know, the the etiquette around it. Do you drink tea with your evening meal? Um, I remember when I saw that the first time. I'd never seen it before. I thought you just drank water, or you know, with your with your with your or wine supper. Yeah, well, or wine later. Yes. Absolutely, yes. I'd never seen tea. Um, but and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know whether to drink it with my food or after my food. I, I felt really uncomfortable. I was about eighteen. I just didn't know the etiquette. And 
I was with friends. Yeah. But I was with my friend's parents. And it's it just felt really confronting that I didn't know what to do. But it's the same, as you say, even down to the pronunciation of a, a scone or a scone. Or would you put butter on first? Cream, jam, you know, what do you do with this stuff? So, you know, which cutlery do you use? So already we're tripping people up just around tea. Yes. And uh, I mean, one of the most lots of people gave me some very lovely kind of personal kind of stories and one of the most heartbreaking was a um a colleague who'd grown up in Manchester um I think on the council estate I think she said and she she then worked for the BBC and they went to Manchester and had an evening dinner and she didn't want to invite her mum to the evening meal because her mum would have expected a cup of kind of sweet milky tea and everybody else was having wine and it's just pulling those two kind of social circles together with those ex- different expectations is really difficult for us all. Yeah, yeah. And it, it and it stops us wanting to feed people. I think that that's the difference, isn't it, between perhaps some of the more uh, culinary cultures around the world. Um, and I think I don't remember talking to William Sitwell about this. Um, I think it's to do with when we became Protestant. It's not very generous. It's making sure that you keep up with the Joneses. It's about, you know, aspiration and being seen to do the right thing. Whereas the Catholic countries are much more generous. They feed, don't they? Is that too much of a a generalisation? I think that's so interesting because if you look at the history of sort of vegetarianism, for example... The Catholic view is that all food, meat include, you know, and vegetables and whatever, is is God-given. And you would be ungracious and ungrateful to to refuse something that God offers you. Um, and I'm not Catholic, so I hope I'm not kind of misrepresenting that view. But the whole idea of Protestantism was to use food, and this is where vegetarianism kind of grew out of it, was to use food as a means of self-improvement, particularly for the working man. You know, you became more spiritual, you became purer if you weren't eating meat, for example. Um, and that was a, a, a means to becoming a more moral, more educated, a kind of better person. Yeah. Um, pleasure and, was yes. not really allowed was it yes and obviously the puritans and um this idea that the puritans banned christmas i mean i think they didn't exactly ban christmas but um they wanted people to fast yeah. and when christmas fell on a fast day they said look you'd be better off just fasting don't have this ab- abominable broths of you know s- spice and plums and meat and don't don't yes don't try and eat meat because that's obviously you know it's a waste of your money (laughs) but of course there's plenty of cultures that that do fast but they feast afterwards and there's a joy about it and are coming together with the families again that's not very british is it shall we go into your second food moment and explore that a little bit more because you do talk a little bit about pasta the ultimate in peasant food and easy food but not in britain well not in britain and actually what was interesting is initially not in italy but i think what was so interesting about the kind of parallel um experiences of pasta if a food can have experiences in britain and in italy it would have started off as a 
a kind of a very aristocratic food and there are recipes for pasta for macaroni for pappardelle for lozenges which is like lasagna in the first british cookery roll scroll which comes from 1390 and so you know we have medieval macaroni cheese recipes in britain um and people were eating pasta throughout the years you know um there are recipes for vermicelli pudding in the eight 1800s, for example. Um, Hannah Glass, the famous Hannah Glass of the mid-18th century says, you know, you make, make, make pasta yourself because it's fresher and better than that that you've kind of imported from abroad. And so, but what was a very interesting comparison moment was that um, in, a, I think, 1590, a British uh, kind of entrepreneur developed a pasta extruding machine. And he said, look, 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 this can make pasta. And you can victual the Navy. It can be a really good way of making food, you know, available for everybody. And everybody went, mm, yeah, maybe. No, I don't think so. And actually, when that happened in Italy, it was then developed as, particularly in Naples, it became seen as a really useful way of feeding the poor. And so we do have this image of Italian pasta as being a kind of a working class place, as one of its um, historians famously described it. Um, whereas, in fact, it, it historically it isn't from a kind of, it doesn't have this working class background, but... And one of the interesting things was because in Italy it was a working class food, it then became adopted, you know, it manufactured, dried, very easy to store, very easy to transport. It then became adopted throughout the, the rest of, um, of the kind of social hierarchy, whereas often food introductions go the other way around they start at the top and then they kind of filter down having said that you know when you start talking about hannah glass and 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 the early cookbooks Mm. Mm. you know most of the poor were illiterate all over the world um so while the italians were just using their flour and water just simply to make poor people's food which was which they could make delicious with of course their mediterranean vegetables the the british poor didn't ever have access to to pasta did they it was always a middle class thing it was always a middle class thing and for the british poor their flag was bread and white bread and there was so much focus on try you know on having bread that was either being being told that you could only have bread that was relevant to your station so if you were a worker if you worked in the fields if then you had brown bread that was your appropriate for you your you had a peasant digestion and you could digest the kind of all the bran or and um and you know you were it, it would give you the energy and you needed and the white stuff wasn't was too good for the likes of you kind of thing and unsurprisingly uh you know workers said well actually White bread's easier to eat, thanks very much. It gives us a more a quicker hit, a quicker kind of carb hit. We want it. Don't tell us what we can't have. And eventually, you know, people came to eat white bread because it became cheaper and that's what everybody wants. It is much easier to eat in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, so the kind of British peasant, I suppose, inverted commas class, we are quite conservative and the idea of even eating potatoes was a massively kind of vexed issue in the uh, the early 19th and and late 18th century. 
you know, that links perfectly with your third food moment, the picnic. Again, a fabulous portrait of class in Britain. You've got the workers, the farm workers eating their their bread and chutneys and meats on just as a you know way of taking a break from the heavy toil on the land. Tell us about the upper classes and their shoots. Well, interestingly, eating outside was either a very aristocratic thing to do, something you do on a hunting picnic, for example, with hundreds of kind of servants and, you know, horse-drawn carts bringing great big barons of beef and, uh, you know, tons of, of uh, wine or whatever, and uh, a ton that's in a, a barrel of wine. Um and then, like you say, if you're a worker, you would sit, you would eat in the fields and you'd never call it a picnic. Right? Even when the word picnic was being used from the beginning of the 1800s. And there are interesting regional words for it. You know, it's, it's beaver or bavor or miners call it a snap. You know, every region and every kind of occupation seemed to have a slightly different word for, you know, um, in Hertfordshire, it might be called victualling, you know, you victual the workers, for example. And I think what happened is that the the sort of middle classes who were moving towards the, the towns were losing this relationship with the land and missing it, like we are today, you know, like today, we we are desperate to kind of recreate uh, some kind of relationship with nature and with our food. And we've, we know we've gone wrong. You know, we know we've gone wrong in industrialising our food. And we want to manage to eat food, you know, that has, that comes from a land in the way that feels natural and feels right and feels authentic. And I think that was also happening at the beginning of in the kind of romantic period when people like Wordsworth and all these people in the Lake District, you know, all the kind of romantic poets in the Lake District started to picnic. And they were saying, well, he, we have a, a reason to be on the land. We have just as much right as a kind of intellectual middle class to be on the land as you workers do or you kind of landowners do. And the picnic became enthusiastically taken up by you know, bicycling and, uh, you know, kind of... The hamper on the back of the beautiful yeah. old car. Yeah, 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 by kind of people who wanted to go off and discover things and look around churches or go for walks and all the rest of it. And, um, yeah, so the picnic then becomes much more kind of universal. And then there's this other use of the picnic. So Claudia Roden, you mentioned, um, who talked about the exporting of the picnics to the Middle East Egypt, Africa and Asia by the colonials. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, out of Africa. I'm thinking about the big hunts with the great big uh, celebratory picnics. I mean, that was something quite different, wasn't it? Yes, and they were done very much on a kind of Mrs Beaton scale. So, you know, again, there's this slightly anxiety that if you don't do it on a kind of massive scale with corkscrews and wine glasses and teapots and everything, you know, and tables and chairs, then somehow you'll be, you know, losing your civilization. And this is what um, comes up a lot in, in Jane Austen, you know, that famous picnic on Box Hill in Emma. And they're all very, 
you know, Jane and Mr Knightley are a bit anxious. Mr Knightley particularly is very anxious about having a picnic outside because it's not very civilised. And sure enough, civilization does break down and Emma is rude to Miss Bates. That's the kind of Jane Austen <laughs> version of civilization breaking down. But going back to Claudia Roden, yeah, she's, she's pointing out that in these kind of Middle Eastern picnics that everybody would have masses of kind of faff around it. And then the cooks, the local cooks, would make something totally delicious on a little kind of charcoal fire by the side you know they do some kebabs or something which nobody would eat because that wasn't the traditional british picnic food um and they'd miss out obviously on yeah something completely delicious but i think we've i think we've managed to get over that now and now when we people have barbecues i think we're much more (laughs) open-minded about what we eat well, it's interesting because the barbecue itself is changing. And it's again, it's a class issue because a lot of people uh, who are able to in, uh, engage with the climate debate are people who are healthy and well off enough to be able to spare the energy to think about local sourcing and yes. high welfare meat. Um, and then you've got the, the, the old barbecues where you've got factory farmed meat being piled mm. onto the barbecues, which, are you know, so you've got that distinction again and it is a class issue it is a a a difficult one to navigate for those of us who are trying to find the answers and to to be able to communicate about that it's it's quite similar actually to your fourth food moment the avocado which is absolutely ridden with that discussion you know on many levels the, the, the avocado is the is the domain of the middle class but those of us who are climate activists you know won't touch an avocado mm. because of the food miles and the impact on uh, on where it comes from and and climate and food justice and all those issues are all wrapped up in one tiny little avocado pair yes it's so odd the avocado i think it has it shares with other vegetables say this kind of long period of adoption so the potato the tomato similarly came in from the you know the americas and everybody were we're not eating that that's a bit kind of weird and poisonous and eventually as we know the tomato and potato got adopted but over a very long period of time with and a lot of um a lot of kind of you know antipathy to them and then the avocado was rather odd because we just sort of ignored it mostly until the 1920s and then began to, you know, began to kind of introduce it back into the country in the, I guess, in the 70s. And it had this, um, it had this very sort of 70s image, didn't it, for a long time, you know, the avocado and the, and the prawn cocktail. And I think if you go, if you look at um, how it changed its image to become the most middle class food ever, apparently, according to some, <laughs> you know, and, um, with avocado hand, you know, if you prod yourself trying to get the stone out of the avocado, that is apparently the most middle class injury ever. And, um, and I think that's a very deliberate manipulation by, you know, the California Avocado Growers Association. They're, they, they present it as a Mediterranean healthy food and they try and expunge its kind of embarrassing, you know, Mexican or kind of South American roots because they don't want us to think of it in those terms. And it worked in a way. But I think you're right. We are at a moment now in the avocados kind of, we're at a sort of tipping point in the avocados fortunes whereby it's, 
ceasing its gloss is definitely wearing off. It is about the way we fetishise certain foods and I'm sure that is to do with our ultimate dysfunction around Mm. food. Mm. So let's revisit that first question. Did you find the answer in your book about why we are so dysfunctional about food? I think it's I think it's because we are dysfunctional about class and because we use food as a way of judging each other and and so instead of food being a way of bringing people together we have used it as a way of distinguishing ourselves from other people so it's it's like that idea of distinction that kind of Pierre Bourdieu idea of distinction um and judgment so it's distinction and it's judgment um, and it's also also kind of manipulation. You know, we do have this history of saying, you know, you, this food is appropriate for you. Tea is not appropriate for the working classes because why would you need tea? You don't, you know, you're not doing intellectual labour, for example. That's something that Samuel Johnson said. And so I think it is a thousand years of inculcated f- feelings about class and how we just cannot unwrap food from it and every time that we try every time we try and do it we sort of something else you know something we have an innovation and it moves on I think and I also think one of the reasons we have this incredibly kind of fast innovation and adoption innovation thing going on you know which I think in in some ways is probably not good for restaurants for example because restaurants they come in they become fashionable and then nobody wants to eat whatever it is that they're doing anymore and it moves on and I think all that kind of speed um, has got quite a lot to do with our kind of class background and our, our kind of our obsession with social status and what you do about it that's the question isn't it you know because whether you try and see, can we see a, a, a situation in the future where actually we, are, we think of food more along the French or the Italian or the Spanish model that everybody aspires to food that is good, fresh, locally available? That's the question. And I think you just have to start asking the right questions about food. You know, unwrap it from identity as much as you can and think about the food does it can we you know is it good for you does it scale out can everybody get it yeah but of course we know that that's not the way that british have ever seen food no, and exactly. unlikely to and of course you know you you have um, a copy of, of my book taste on the tv chef which does say that tv taught us to eat in a completely different way does that fit if you think about the last 20 years of how television food culture has totally changed what we put on the plate does that fit with your thesis in scoff i think one of the things that that television food does is that it it does make it more democratic it does make ideas of kind of good food and good cooking more democratic but it then means that the people at the kind of the top end of the you know, the spectrum who are, who tend to be the people who sort of move things on and lead will always, I will always eat or kind of in such a way that's slightly different from that kind of, you know, from the television food moment. So for example, that whole master chef thing, if you, if you plate your food, 
like they do in MasterChef, because that's what chefs do, and give it to your guests. If your guests are posh, they will go, ooh, this is a bit, you know, this is not quite the thing, is it? Because that's not how you do it in a kind of upper middle class or kind of, you know, dinner party. So I think... And of course, if you gave it to your friends who were not posh, they would be terrified of it. They wouldn't know how to approach it. There would be things on a plate that they wouldn't have seen before or wouldn't recognise. I do think that that television is is potentially democratising, but I think it needs to come with all kinds of other... It needs to come with a kind of government, you know involvement in what we eat and not government not just saying oh well you know you just go shop in the supermarkets that that will tesco can sort out your food problems for you kind of thing so i think that um i think you're absolutely right it's one of it is part of our culture isn't it it is part of our food culture what's the trajectory pen using your thesis um where do we go if we are if class is leveling out a little bit more our culture is being uh diversified we've got lots of really interesting communities embedding their food culture and we're loving it will we learn from it we have yes we do we do learn from it we definitely do and i think um we've learned a huge amount from our kind of immigrant populations and their cuisine and they're much they're often more kind of egalitarian ideas about eating thanks very much indeed pen it's a fascinating read through who we are and who we've been and who possibly we will be thanks jilly thanks for listening you can buy scoff and all the books featured on cooking the books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com next week i am with my absolute hero and a mentor to most of the chefs on the sustainability circuit mr dan barber We'll be talking about his seminal book, The Third Plate, and find out all about his new projects. I'll see you then.